Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I just called to say I love the Stranger Wrestling Podcast and I need it from the bottom of my heart. I want to thank Pete Wonder for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to classic wrestling. And today we're going to talk about Starcade 87, which was 35 years ago. Before I get rolling with that, uh, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. And I also want to invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just search uh, John McAdam and follow the guy with the stick to wrestling avatar as his logo as his avatar excuse me i want to bring on a guest i haven't had on in too long i always i feels like i always say that because i have so many good guests christian body christian thank you for taking the time thanks guys i hope to everyone that's listening i don't know when it's going to air but i hope uh you have a great thanksgiving hope you have a great safe holiday season to you and your families god bless you all whatever you believe in hope you're safe hope you're healthy and hope you're happy and hope you know that you know we're all that uh, we're all, all of us in this group are united for our love of this bizarre business and really the love and kind of res- respect and affection that we've shown towards each other. So, best wishes to you all. Thank you, Christian. And then I, I echo those sentiments. Christian, I can't believe it's been 35 years since this weekend. Uh, I mean, it was a really, we've talked about this, you know, years ago, uh, but I had a giant weekend 35 years ago, Thanksgiving weekend. I believe I went to the NWA show on Long Island the night before Starcade. I'm pretty sure you were there too. I was. What was funny about it was I was talking with a friend of mine about this about two weeks ago. And we were thinking about when we went there that night, and we always talked about Nassau Coliseum. For those that don't know, Nassau Coliseum, is our, we, look, we drove past because we went to a memorial service for someone who passed on 9-11. And we jokingly said, look how easy it is to get to Nassau Coliseum now. You have a, you have a light rail by it, a train rail, a train rail stopped by it. Back in the 80s, it was literally like someone took a giant box, put it on the, the Long Island Expressway and said, here's an arena. Because it, it, it was literally the hardest place to get to with the worst acoustics. But... um. Once you, it, it's funny that it's had some pretty significant wrestling history in terms of it was where the, the, uh, the, the New York leg of WrestleMania 2 was, and it was also where the first Saturday Night's main event was. So it's, despite the fact that it was often considered the third rail for Vince's, you know, New York, New York promotion, New York area, you know, it's, it's got a pretty good history. But the Nassau show, again, John, was, was promoted heavily. It's in September. They started a UWF New York. I remember show. that. Like on t- on what was on on WPIX, which became known as the Yankee Network, and twelve noon on Saturdays, and so they re- they began pushing it like I think the week after Labor Day, so they were hyping it up for a long period of time. So uh, for those that don't know, they drew about twelve thousand that night, and to get twelve thousand at the Nassau Coliseum, for there are three nights in um, New York City, the tri-state area, where the traffic is really terrible. Memorial Day weekend, Labor Day weekend, the night before Thanksgiving. So it's uh. The fact that they got that many people out there to that event, I mean, although it was it was it was talked about heavily, it still drew pretty well. I don't know what did you think of the show because I've heard different opinions on it over the years, so I'm always um, curious what people thought of what they saw. I personally was really disappointed by the show. I mean, every time I'd go to see NWA wrestling, it, it had at least been a very good show, and it was kind of it was definitely a letdown. Um, I felt like they were everyone was kind of saving their energy for Starcade, right? Because I, f- I think people forgot that Starcade was an afternoon show because it was four o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock Central Time when uh, when when it started. And I the thought that's what kind of threw me off for the whole thing because for those of anybody who knows history of Starcade, Dusty always you know made sure that his talent had. The night up, there was no show the night before. Gave them their finish before they got in the building, and wanted, I guess, you know, it's like giving people a day off or something or a bye week before a big show. You wanted them all in the area, thinking about their finish, thinking about their match, you know, getting ready to deliver, you know, a great show for the people, and to have them in New York City and then have some flying to Chicago and some other people flying to other parts of the country because I think they had um they had a show in Greensboro as well and another one in New Orleans. 
with a closed circuit Starcade to me was just very bizarre. And particularly, it just like you said, I, I the show was okay. The war games was a disappointment, and you know, and from a standpoint, it wasn't really you know as good as we've seen in the past. And they had all the big names on the show, but it really was just a very odd. It was kind of like a the crowd wanted something to, to get hyped about, but they didn't. And only, the entrances had more energy than the actual show. I remember the Road Wars came out, people were nuts. But other than that, it was pretty much awful. yeah. I I mean, again, we drove all the, we drove from New Hampshire, and you know, you drive to New York, and then you do a U turn, you head up to Long Island. That was kind of a downer. But anyway, yeah, I got home like four or five in the morning uh, on that Wednesday, <laughs> then Thursday night, and mm-hmm. Thursday it's Thanksgiving, so that's a big enough day. And then we have the Survivor Series. Friday, we go into Boston. We hang out on Washington Street all day. Then at night, we go to see the Bruins game. Then after the night Bruins game, we go to see a late night comedy show. Then after the late night comedy show, it's late night Chinese food. So me coming home at four in the morning again. (laughs) Then Saturday, it's Notre Dame, Miami, uh, Saturday night's main event. And we got a tape of Starcade 87 that that bad guy Dave Meltzer was good enough. He was traveling to Japan the day after Thanksgiving and he was nice enough to overnight me a tape of Starcade 87 which he his cable system was one of the four in the whole country that carried Starcade 87. I mean Christian, you know, it was it was great to see it 48 hours but at the end of the day it was kind of, you know, because Vince McMahon basically got it bumped off a of cable, it was a glorified house show. Notre Dame lost to Miami uh, 24 nothing. Anytime Notre Dame loses, that's a good that's a good Shout out to day. Jeff Bowder, my buddy so, who loves Notre Dame. Right. But, I mean, the, the reality of it is that, I, I, to me, it was a show that could have been so much better than what it was, but it wasn't because they literally kept, like I said, they this goes back to the UWF merger. And it goes back to the fact that they mishandled some of the talent. And even in terms of booking on the show, it it, it we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to the matches. But when you, if you, I told someone this, if you wanted to show someone why end up, you need to watch NWA wrestling as opposed to uh, the WWF, this was not the show to show them because they'd leave their thing and why, what makes their product any better? You know, and it's just, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of awful that it actually ended up being that way. But, you know, it is what it, it basically ended up putting, um, it, it almost, it basically led to Crockett selling because we don't know a few months later they lost money. And that this was This really was the, the, the turning point where it was obvious that Vince was going to win the wrestling war because Jim Crockett Jr. was counting on pay-per-view money from Starcade. Yeah. You know, and he he knew it wasn't going to be WrestleMania, but he figured he was going to make seven figures this night and he didn't even come close. But anyway, I also wanted to throw this in before we start talking about the matches. There was a lot of resentment among the fans in the Carolinas in Virginia over this show being moved to Chicago. I mean, you know, mid Atlantic wrestling had been their, their thing for, for, I mean, decades, if not generations, and now it's changing. It is now a national promotion. It's just not like their thing anymore. And I get why they had to move it, but I also kind of get why people just didn't like it. It's like, hey, Starcade belongs to us. I understood it from our standpoint. If you talk to any of us who grew up in the in the Northeast, what is the one thing we always said about Crockett's crowd, Crockett that we love? The passion of their crowd. Like Greensboro... A pop in Greensboro is not like anything else you're ever going to hear. And even the Omni, you, know, you get rabid, hyped-up fans. But the ironic part about this, I thought, and I thought about this, some of his best-drawing cities at that point were non-traditional Crockett areas like Baltimore and Philly and Chicago. I still wouldn't have moved this out of the Carolinas just because I thought it's their event, it's been there, you've homesteaded there since 83, you've had Greensboro four straight years, you double-split it with Atlanta. I would not have done, you know, what they did via, you know what I mean? I just wouldn't have done it. I understand he wanted to make it look big because it was a, because it was a pay-per-view event. And he wanted to show everyone, Hey, I can do a big city like Chicago as opposed to, you know, like Vince can do too, but it, it just didn't work. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like I said, if you showed someone, 
if you had to show someone the show why what made uh, Crockett Wrestling great, would you show them this or would you show them Starcade 86 or 85 or something else? De- definitely show? something else. Overall, would, I did not think this was a good show. This would not be this would not be the show I would say, yeah, this is this is the show and this is what makes Crockett so superior and this is what Crockett does so well. He does he he really manages to do this, that, and the other. Well he didn't. And as far as I'm concerned, they they pretty much screwed them. They 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 wanted to they they wanted to be big time, but they ended up looking very very small because they just didn't have you know the uh, they the funny part is this this was their first crack at pay per view, it was about as bad it was about as bad as you can as it gets. They learned from it like anyone. By the time they got to the next year with the Baltimore Bash, it looked good, and then they come up with '89. You know the the pay per views that they had that year, they were great. They looked good. They were presented well. You know, but this first one just didn't have, you know, the 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 fire or the spark that was needed to compete with Vince at that point, who had pretty much had a flawless pay per view with WrestleMania three and was pretty much the, what was going to become the industry standard. So it, it's it's unfortunate, but it's uh it's 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 how it's how it goes. It is unfortunate because Crockett. I mean, you know, I've said this. You know, people say you know. You know, it was too Southern. I thought JCP, like, that was part of its charm. Georgia Championship Wrestling and Crockett, that it had that Southern flavor. But anyway, first match is a six-man tag team match. The opener, Eddie Gilbert, Larry Zbysko, and Rick Steiner versus Jimmy Garvin, Michael Hayes, and Sting. Larry Zbysko is new to the promotion. He has Baby Doll as his uh, valet or whatever, so... He, we're thinking he's going to get a, a pretty big push. Turned out really not. Uh, Jim Garvin had a big push this summer before. This opener, it really felt like 15 minutes of filler to me. And Christian, you're you're like me. You're a basketball fan. As the season, as the college basketball season goes on, they have a projected like you know 68 teams in the tournament, and you have a first four in, out and a and a last four in. This felt like. Just that. I mean, these were the last six guys that we wanted to throw in there, and the, the last six out were like, you know, Ron Simmons, the Barbarian, Ivan Koloff, Jimmy Valiant, etc. <laughs> who got who got stuck in Greensboro? Believe it or not, there's the card. The card in Greensboro has like has like the D team, like Kevin Sullivan, the Mighty Wilbur, the Warlord, Mike Rotunda are all in Greensboro. Jimmy Valiant is in Louisiana. The reality of it was this: is that one good thing came out of this match. We got to see Sting, you know, for the first time. And he did. Here's the thing the camera work was so bad, they missed Sting doing a, a tremendous leap out of the ropes onto the floor. So they didn't, <laughs> they missed that. But someone said this was one of the best matches to ever be, to open a Sarcade. I was like, uh, you and I have a different definition of, of best. It was okay. It was, again, it kind of goes to the point that you didn't highlight it, what you could have highlighted. You could have maybe done Sting and Steiner against Gilbert or something like that because they had been going they had been going back and forth feuding because of the split with, with hot stuff. And, you know, they were trying to, I guess, hype up Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin as the new babyface, number one babyface team that was going to replace the Rock and Roll Express. But it, it to me, it looked like a missed opportunity. And to have a draw is even worse. You know, it's it, you, normally when you start a show, if you want to get the crowd into it and give them, you know, something to cheer about, you give them a draw. Well, you, you, didn't, really, you didn't really give them anything. So... To me, it was just, it was a miss. It, it was the first swing and a miss that we were going to get on the night of kind of Yeah, and it's misses. not like you know, Rick Steiner was about to have a much bigger 1988 than he did 1987. But they, you easily could have had Rick Steiner uh, doing the honors here in this match. Or you could have had Steiner versus Thing, because, again, they had turned against each other, you know, in the UWF. But, I, I, again, it goes back to the whole thing about mismanaging what you're given. You did any of us know what Sting? I mean, we knew Sting and Steiner were good. We didn't know what they were going to become, you know, the following year. No, none of us did. I mean, I mean, if you'd have told me that in three months Sting and Flair would have a match for the ages, and I would be like, "Are you serious?" No, <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, I knew Sting had improved. You know, it'll it it's it, it, but I none of us saw it was coming. I mean, I even thought they kind of didn't use Steiner as well as he could have because I mean, I know. The varsity club was kind of a cool gimmick, but to me, it was like a gimmick to really push Rotunda. And like they kept making, you know, Rick the background guy. When, if we're being honest, in the ring, there's no one better. If we're comparing Rotunda and Steiner, come on, it's, not, it's you know, it's not, it's not even close at this point. But it's, it's 
again, wasted opportunity. And it's, it's again, if you're trying to showcase your talent, you don't put him in Broadway. You let someone go over. And, and the fact that they kind of got the smarts to say, okay, Sting, uh, Sting, we can push him now after this match. That's, uh, that, that, that's the best thing that came out of that match was the fact they finally figured out, Hey, Sting, you know, we can do something here. And even then they, they didn't use him properly. I know Chris Tabor, our good buddy Chris Tabor, still thinks Luger should have been given the NWA title, but I've always been, no, it should have been Sting. Looking back, you're absolutely right. When Sting caught fire in 88, you know, and they're having all kinds of problems, maybe they should have rolled the dice and just put the title on Sting, but that's not what happened. But anyway, now we have a match that I was really looking forward to. Barry Windham, who had established himself as one of, if not the best in-ring worker in the United States, and I, I yes, that's a mouthful against Dr. Death Steve Williams, who was he wasn't great yet, but he had turned the corner. He was good. A lot of people say, you know, is wrestler X good or was he good? Like uh, Williams stunk in like 82. It was awful in 82, 83, but he was getting better. And now he was at a point where he was good. So I was looking forward to this match. I was thinking maybe they could squeeze four stars out of it. No, this match was terrible, Christian. It made no sense because it, it goes back to the point. If they were trying to do a thing where they're trying to turn Doc, they which were. I think they were trying to do. They're trying to say, like, friends can't wrestle each other. And, and this goes back. They kind of did this thing with the Midnight Express, Tully and Arn in 88 a year later. Like, you can't be friends or wrestle each other. The finish made no sense. Like, Barry lets Doc recover and Doc does nothing. Had you let it go on longer where, you know, Doc hobbles around for five, for a good five minutes. And Wyndham kind of lets them back into the thing. And all of a sudden, after like, you know, 10 seconds, Wyndham falls out of the ring, gets, hurts his arm. And Doc is brutalizing his arm and brutalizing his shoulder or something like that. That would have made sense. I mean, Doc was, he was always good at like, as being like the, the, the bully, you know, as the, or the, or I call it the Sherman tank. Like against someone like, I'm thinking back to his matches with Terry Gordy and things like that. He was great in that type of situation against a lesser individual. Or I say a smaller individual didn't work, and you were right about Wyndham. He was the second best in the. He and Flair were the two best in the business in '87. That's kind of shocking because you had DiBiase was still around, but it made me think about the fact that DiBiase didn't really do much in the ring once he uh, left the UWF. So Wyndham, to me, is a solid number two. And, and again, they wasted Wyndham. You'd have been better off having I don't know I don't know what you could have done with that point because you hyped up this match as like. It's pretty funny that you hyped up a match for the UWF title in the promotion you were getting ready to pretty much, you know, uh, vanish and get rid of two weeks later. I mean, it, less than a month, it was gone. And what, what was the point of, what was the point of the match if you're getting ready to kill the title? And, and, and you also had a unification match later in the show. It's like, again, this is just a, 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 a kaleidoscope of bad decisions after bad decisions. And this is the second one that they swing in the middle. Yeah, I, I mean, I laughed to think back when they created the Western States heritage title, which lasted about a year. They created a title because they didn't know what else to do with Barry Windham, which is just crazy to me. But yeah, this match was bad. Uh, it was supposed to lead to doc turning heel Look, give me the book here. Make Dr. Death Steve Williams a heel, something he should have been in the United States. Make Jim Cornette his manager, and you have a main eventer. But instead, they do this turn that makes no sense, or this half turn that makes no sense. Doc does this horrible interview after the match. Doc was never a good interview, so again, <laughs> make him a heel. And, you know, the, the, the turn went nowhere. There was no... Uh, Nothing happened afterward to finish the story, and pretty soon Doc was gone for two or three months. He went to Japan. He went. He went to Japan for like two months. Didn't come back. Came back, and they just tried to use him again. And the, here's a funny part about the pay per view. I'm glad you brought this up. After the first match, they had Missy Hyatt do it, giving like an interview or just talking. I'll be here all night talking to your favorite wrestlers. We never saw nope. him for the rest of the night. <laughs> I just wanted to drop that in there. I was thinking about stuff that they did that made you just go, did y'all plan this out at all? Did you, did you, did you plan, did you plan this out or think about it? I don't, I don't even know what to say about, I don't even know what to say about it at this point, but it's like, I, I can't, it goes back to the merger being botched. Had you had maybe Terry Gordy still there, you know, or I don't know, someone else, I, I don't really, the UWF roster when they got it in 
April or May or April of that year was relatively thin at that point. And so this kind of showed the thinness of what they had. Because I think the first month that Dr. Jet had the UWF title, he wrestled Eddie Gilbert for like a month and a half. That's all they had. And then he tried to give him Dick Murdoch, and that didn't work. Because, you know, these are people that people in the Mid-South were familiar with, but after a year of having Terry Gordy defend against DiBiase, Duggan, Terry Taylor, Dr. Death, you know, to give them something like Dr. Death taking on Eddie Gilbert, Dr. Death taking on whatever. It also shows how they screwed up. They could have given the belt to Sting or had Sting take them on. That would have made some some type of sense, but you know, I, I they they bought this promotion and seemed like it's like they bought a car that was really good looking and had some value and just stuck it in their driveway. I, I mean, that's a good analogy. They, I mean, and from the start, they were pretty clear that look, you know, we're only buying this promotion because we want the the syndicated network. We don't care about the wrestlers, which was really dumb because it was right at that point, which was April 1987, where some of the NWA guys were feeling a little bit stale and they could have used an influx of talent and the talent lands in their lap and they decide they're not going to use it. That that is funny you brought that up because I, I use the, this is an analogy I, I thought about with this. When Bill Walsh was coaching the 49ers, he always talked about he looked at his team in three-year intervals. And he said, what will it be after three years? And I always say, Dusty got the book when late 84, and by the end of 85, he had his full kind of roster of what he wanted to do in place. He rode that really, really hard, whether it was Flair, Rock and Roll, Road Warriors, you know, the Horsemen, Nikita, whatever. By He rode that by the end of 86, they were showing there, or we're showing wear and tear because you rode them all over the country. By early, like you said, by early '87, you, you're given a chance to replenish your talent base, kind of like kind of like a draft. You can maybe pick and choose who you want to book. You know, how do you tell Ted DiBiase? Or I know that you said Teddy was leaving anyway. I would have never made that deal unless Ted DiBiase's name was on the contract. I would have told the Freebirds, "I need you till the end of the year. I have plans for you." How do you not have? The, they had the Freebirds wrestle the Four Horsemen once, and then that was it. That's a match made in heaven. You know. Gordy versus Flair, you know, put the six-man belts that you don't use on them. Have a few yeah. centered around that. That could have gone on for six months. It, it's like they didn't even – they didn't. How do, you, how do you have the Freebirds not recognize the value in one of the biggest draws at that point of the half decade? In Atlanta. You don't yeah. see this? Uh, it's, it, it was enough to make you just go – Y'all want to go out of business. Go ahead. Bye. Uh, one problem was, and this this was a problem with both DiBiase and Gordy, is they and and Williams, they all had lucrative Japan deals. And Gordy, you know, was making big money over there. But you know, you book around that, just like Watts did. I would have said, I would have told Terry, Terry, I'll honor your Japan trips. Doc, Ted, you too. You want to go to Japan? I got you. Don't worry. We'll work. How would you not yeah. work around it? It's like, I don't know, I guess it's like um, load management in the NBA. So so we'll work around it, we'll do what we can do, and we'll make this okay. I just don't see how they screwed this up this badly that you end up with a devalued asset that ultimately puts you out of business. And it just didn't even no, it didn't they, make any they sense. they completely screwed up the whole UWF acquisition. I, I've been saying that for well over 35 years now. Yeah. We all have. At the time, we all said. <laughs> all right. Next. I, I kept saying, where are the Freebirds? All summer long, I was like, they gave mm-hmm. them one shot, and it seemed by August they were gone. And I just said, a year a year earlier, they're the hottest thing in the business with the UWF, and then they're they're doing, you know, jobs for, I don't know, with, with Paul Jones and Ivan Koloff. I, it, I, inexcusable. And they go right back to world class and end up picking up where they left off and helping them somewhat resuscitate their business for a few months. But, you know, you, you, you didn't even think long enough, long term enough to use them, which is beyond. No, a beyond lot of bizarre. guys were gone soon after this. Doc was gone. He came back soon, but he was gone. Hayes was gone. Taylor was gone. Eddie Terry Gilbert Taylor was gone. Anyway, uh, they, so a though. lot of them came back eventually, but, you know, they had had it with the, with this promotion uh, and Dusty. But anyway, Someone explain. I think that's what yeah, it was. A, a lot of guys. I mean, Dusty did not supposedly guys. more than supposedly he did not treat the UWF guys well. That's what I mean because I know he, I know first of all we know he didn't like Terry Taylor. He and Terry didn't get along in '85, so that led to him going to Mid South. I know he didn't get along with Hayes. Um, that that that's been well documented in other areas. So I don't. I in terms of the other people, the ones he kept, 
he fell in the, he fell into a barrel of you know what the camera with two diamonds and Sting and Steiner. But after that, it was you know I don't know who else they really kept. They kept the sheep herds, I think, for a little bit, but that, and, you know, it's just, to me, I, it, if you buy that promotion, you have to sit there and say, okay, we have to pump things into it. You put the UWF show on TBS. You start sending people, you know, uh, on, on and, and try to, you know, revive, to send, to send Tim Horner and, Tim Horner and Brad Armstrong down there to, um, to, to, to beat Sting and Steiner for the tag titles. What sense did that make? You took two mid carters and had beat their their two best young pieces of town, and that was like, were you just trying to insult them? I understand Horner and Armstrong were familiar to that audience, but I never would have done that. That just no, made they no were sense. two guys like you said who were middle, strictly middle of the card in the NWA, and they send them down there and, and meet, immediately win the tag team title. Same thing with Big Bubba. I mean, Big Bubba had a lot of talent, but the first thing they do is they send a guy from Crockett who's kind of mid card and make him the UWF champion. It made Mid South slash UWF look minor league. But Skywalker's match is next. Yep, the Rock and Roll Express against the Midnight Express. Christian, in my eyes, this is inexplicable after they had the Skywalkers match the year before. To me, a scaffold match, you've seen it once, you don't need to see it again. It looks good in the buildup on TV. Oh my God, they're going to wrestle on this thing. Someone's going to get killed. It's scary. And then you see what it is. It's a bunch of guys crawling around up in the air, and there's no reason to bring this back. In addition... You know, you turn what could have been a great match, the Rock and Roll Express against the Midnights, into a bad match. And yes, they had done the Rock and Rolls and the Midnights before, but the Rock and Rolls really didn't have a program with the Eaton and Lane version of the Midnight Express. To me, this was a tremendous wasted opportunity. Well, they had they had a program. They went. They did a summer program. And when you say they were afraid of them, it's almost what Jim Cornetta said. You, we could have had a match that brought the house down. Maybe that's what they were afraid of. Because when you look at the other matches on the card, if you give if you give the Rock and Roll Midnight Express even ten minutes, they're going to blow your doors off. And they they they're fully capable of just you know taking over. They're like they're like a it's like a Jordan effect. Like they they can steal the show from you and make you just look like really like oh my god, the rest of these guys are are, are clods and things like that. The, the the thing about the scaffold that was even funnier was because I actually watched it and compared it to the one from '86. The one from '86, they cut a middle section out. This one looked like an erector set, and it just looked like it just it was it was okay. And then to make what to make matters worse, you humiliate Bubba twice to have him grow up there and get a nut shot, and then you don't pay the guy. And he says, "You know what? Y'all make me get humiliated on the biggest show of the year, and you don't pay me. I'm out." He, where does he go? To the WF where he becomes a bigger star as the big boss man. It's like, it's like getting kicked, it's like getting kicked in the groin twice. You don't use your, your two best in the ring teams in a match that was great. And then you end up losing a piece of talent like Bubba that was really vital to what, what who could have been a star with you. And again, we're, as far as I'm concerned right now, they're 0 for 3. Because they've, they've screwed up the first two, they took their two best in the ring teams and put them in an environment where they couldn't flourish and do anything, and they lose Bubba Rogers because of it. And, you know, it's you, you didn't even have something like a memorable bump like what Cornette did the previous year. And as much as I'd say about Jim ruining his knee, but that's what people tend to remember, you know, about, about Starcade, about that previous night. But this one, I don't even remember it. I just remember, like I said, I remember Bubba getting the nut shot, and then that's the end of it. So it's... It's right now this this show again. If I put this show to to someone and said this is really quality wrestling, they look yeah. like, "Are you high?" That's what they're probably. That's what they would say. Uh, I mean, you know, again, wasted opportunity. It's kind of sad. Yeah, Bubba, Bubba left for the WWF. I want to say like four months, about four months later, and you know, Dusty had a legendary tantrum on TV over it. But anyway, uh, now we have the NWA versus UWF title unification match with Nikita Koloff, the NWA TV champion, against Terry Taylor with Eddie Gilbert, the UWF TV champion. Christian, I thought this match had the worst buildup ever. They made Terry Taylor look like a complete joke in the buildup. And to the point where I was like, okay, when you book like this, you're booking towards making Terry Taylor the double champion, even though I, I knew that made no sense coming in. I'm like, are they really going to swerve us and have Terry Taylor win this match? 
No, Nikita pretty much, I don't want to say dominated the match, but it was Nikita's match, and he won clean. And, I mean, I, I keep using the term wasted opportunity. Dusty, put your differences with Terry Taylor aside. You have an asset here. I thought Terry Taylor was great in 1987. And, again, they just booked him into the ground. I loved Terry when he turned because he really became kind of the best kind of heel. Like He became um, – like a, a, a wise-ass punky. He's not like Tully Blanchard, who's like a punk. But this, I, I actually like this match because, I, I, although I thought when they had him steal the TV title, they had him and Eddie Gilbert steal great. the TV title. I mean, Eddie and Terry, I thought, were, were great together. I mean, I remember, like, Nikita comes on television and they stole my title. They stole my title. <laughs> it was just like, it was funny to, funny to watch it. I thought, and Terry, to me, became, found himself as a heel, as some people often do. Kind of like, Barry Windham did a few months later. Um, I like this match. Um, the crowd really got into it. If you if you watch this closely, the crowd was really into this match. I think, um, but it pretty much told me right then and there that the UWF was going to be gone because once they did the unification, I'm like, my thought process was, why are you doing a unification? And then my brain said, oh God, they're getting rid of it. And then it was a good match. Um, had I mean Eddie and Terry kind of worked very well together. I thought I thought it was enough about. I thought it was enough of um, cowardice. I mean, Eddie get, Terry gives Nikita one of the best chops I've ever seen in this match. It's a phenomenal chop. And it's, it really works. I think it works well as like him having to rely on cheating to win, but ultimately Nikita getting the better of them with the sickle. I mean, the pop when he, when he, when he pins him is very, is really loud. I think Nikita was kind of really over at that point. And I liked the match. I just didn't like, the, I just didn't like the fact that they never, they, they pretty much got rid of Terry after that. He could have been, that could have been the, the next member of the horseman, if the truth be told. He would have fit. But, you know, Dusty just, I, I really, I really would like to know what Dusty's issue was with Terry. I just don't get it. You think he'd be his kind of guy. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are a couple of stories out there. Supposedly, Terry was Terry Taylor was mocking Dusty Rhodes on an airplane when Dusty he thought Dusty was, was wearing headphones and and I heard that story. Dusty heard the whole thing. And then I heard another story that Dusty in 1985 said, "Hey, you know, if anyone's not happy with their push, come talk to me. You know, we'll work something out. We'll release you." And Taylor, like in front of everyone, says, "Well, I want to get out of here." And Dusty felt really disrespected. I'm not sure if either of those things actually happened, or both of them happened, or whatever. But that's those are the stories I heard. I'm pretty sure about the latter one about you know Taylor just you know okay get me out of here you know I'm going back to mid south. And yeah, I remember. In 87, you know, seeing this and, you know, wondering, okay, you know, what's next for Eddie Gilbert and Terry Taylor after this? Well, what was next was Memphis for Eddie and Dallas for Terry. Yep. I mean, and then we all know what happened to Terry after that, but Eddie pretty much turned Memphis into uh, <laughs> the best television show you had to see because of all the crazy stuff you were doing, he was doing. But that always makes me wonder if they'd just given the UWF book to, to Eddie, oh, what would have happened? They I mean, did. Did, did they? They he, he was the booker, but he was the booker like under Dusty. Okay. I mean, they weren't, yeah, because that explains some of the stuff they were doing, but I mean, just, they should have just turned them loose and just let them do some, some real crazy, um, some real crazy stuff. But it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bizarre that they just couldn't figure out a way to utilize two pieces of talent like that. And then once, um, you know, Eddie kind of came back and became a babyface when he came to the NWA. But the fact that Eddie went to Memphis and pretty much turned that into must-see television, you know, for for those people that hadn't seen Memphis in '88, the early part of '88, get some footage of it because it's because it's pretty incredible what Eddie Gilbert. And yeah, Jared they, did. they it was really some good stuff. I mean, Eddie was a really good booker because he just took all the best angles he saw growing up as a kid, took a couple that he made up himself and just threw them out there on TV. It was. It, it was known back then as kind of hot-shotting, but it made for some really good television. So I, I back up Christian's uh, uh, opinion on that. Eddie in Memphis in 88 was great. He learned he learned from Watts. Oh, yeah. He learned from Watts. I mean, I mean, a lot of people consider what Watts did in 86 hot-shotting. He kind of had no choice, but it, it created, as I've said, the best wrestling television product you're probably ever going to see. But in terms of – in terms of um, in terms of Memphis, I mean, he was doing what he had to do because, again, Memphis didn't really have a lot of talent post '86 to work with. So it was kind of a situation where you did what you had to do, and then you were, and you just, um, 
you you kind of threw it up against the wall and hope it worked. I mean, I think the, I mean, getting hit with a car and things like that. I mean, like I said to anybody listening, just get Memphis of '88 from like January to like May. It's it's pretty insane. It really is. Until Eddie Gilbert left for Continental because he wasn't getting paid enough. He was he was doing really good stuff in Memphis. All right, and Missy was hilarious in Memphis. You, you got to see her too. All right, now. So was his father. His his father was even crazy. His father was even was his crazy little too, brother so. too. I mean, everyone in the Gilbert clan got yeah. in on the act. But anyway, now we have the NWA World Tag Team Title match. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard are the champions against the Road Warriors in their adopted hometown of Chicago. Now, a lot of people rightfully were disappointed. This was first of all, this was a great match. And there was one spot where Road Warrior Hawk absolutely clips Tully right in the face with both feet with a drop kick. I mean, Tully got potato to hell. Um, right. But you know, it was an excellent match. Here, here's what people have to remember, too. This is the very beginning of Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson being a regular tag team. Tully had held the uh, NWA TV yep. title until like the middle of August. And right after that, he and Arn became a regular tag team. So this team is kind of in its infancy, and they are already a great team. It's hard to take the titles off of them. Then again, you can't. The Road Warriors aren't going to let themselves be pinned, and you shouldn't pin the Road Warriors. So, why are we booking a match that, that doesn't have a finish? That's my big question. As of right now, they're not, in my estimation, they're not one for five. I said I like the Terry Taylor match. This match to me, it shows to the difficulty of yep. booking the Road Warriors. You can't beat you can't beat them, and people were tired of the dust. The dusty finish rears his ugly head. You could have done a double disqualification. You could have done something where, out of I, I'm, even the unthinkable, Hawk and Animal do a job. <laughs> but it, it, again, you you could, as a friend of mine said, you can't really kill the Road Warriors in anything. You can't. The fans don't want to boo them. You can't pin them. So what do you do? I mean, to me, the only thing that worked here was a double DQ or some type of situation where um, Tully and Arn win. You know, knocking somebody out. I just don't like. You know, giving fans false finishes like that on a show like this because it goes back to Starcade '85. You know, you ended the show that time with uh, thinking that a world title change hands and everybody went home happy. They turn on TV two days later. What happens? So, you know, it's a situation where I, booking the Road Warriors it became an impossibility throughout their careers, and particularly on a big show like this, either give them the belts and then, um, you know, have them. Or do the powers of pain thing early when they get injured and they have to get stripped of the titles or just have a double DQ or have Tully and on win outright to do this like that and have fans chanting and screaming and yelling didn't, it didn't know one any good. I mean, and although the match itself was excellent because, um, as, as Hulk and animal said, Tully can, can make you look good. And I remember that dropkick Tully took. I mean, <laughs> Tully got, Tully got potatoed quite a bit. By the by, the LOD that year, first in the war games, and then yeah. this. So you know, tip tip of the cap to Tully for tip, for being for being um, a true soldier. But I also think that part of that part of this is where his discontentment with his pay led to, because like, hey, we're putting a lot of guys over. We're not getting paid as much as uh, you know some of our contemporaries are. And, and inevitably, I think this is where that 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 seed was planted. I, I might be wrong in saying that, but I think that's No, right. I mean, you know, I was, Arn Anderson did an interview where he said he was supposed to get $25,000 for this event. He wound up getting 11000 He's like, hey, I know guys who made, got a lot less than I did, but Arn was saying that this was kind of the beginning of the end for him in the NWA because he didn't get paid what he said he was going to get paid. And it goes back to Something I said, you know, maybe a half an hour ago, at the end of the day, this was kind of a glorified house show. This was not the equivalent of WrestleMania. They didn't bring in that kind of money. Had they gone to Greensboro, because they, I think the house here was about 10000 10000 is the max in the U.S. Pavilion. If they do Greensboro and they sell it out, that's about, what, 15000 So they're getting paid more automatically off the house gate. I, it's To, to me, this was... The, this should be the show of self-inflicted wounds. We're, we're sounding like we're beating a dead horse, but we're not. We're saying that because we're at the end of this, we're looking at a promotion that should have been cresting going into '88, and instead, the seeds of disillusionment, discontentment, and ultimately its demise were planted this night. And it, with all due respect, all of these things were preventable, just with common sense. You know, they didn't. They didn't utilize it, and that's and that's the part that pisses me off. 
you know, ultimately you you ultimately the booker makes the decisions, but there was enough bad things done here on all parts where you just had to say, guys, we got to do better than this, and we're we're smarter than this, aren't we? I mean, it's it's just so disheartening to think about this and watch this show again and think what could have been. And then, especially when you compare it to previous Starcades, which were, even with lesser talent on it, were better shows. That's the thing. Well, I, I mean, look at it this way, Christian. I mean, and everyone listening, I was such a big fan of this promotion that the night before Starcade, I it was, what, five and a half hours each way to see an NWA house show. And then I, I think I spent $50 getting the tape overnighted to me. So, you know, I, I was, right. no one was a bigger fan than me. No no one wanted to see this promotion succeed more than me. No one wanted, you know, invested more in it. You know, I loved it. I didn't want to not like Starcade 87, but at the end of the day, it was just a hard show to like, man. It, it was disheartening to me because we're cracked. But people, you and I both grew up in yep. WWF territory. So for us to sit here and say we preferred something, although I had family in Georgia and I've seen the NWA quite a bit, and we were closer than the other. For us to say we preferred something else to it and wanted to succeed and were disheartened when it didn't happen, yeah, we're telling you that. And when we see this going, again, self-inflicted wounds. Again, if you put the NWA product up against Vince and put it on side-by-side in the ring, what's better? It's not even close. What's produced better and what's marketed better, that's the difference. Because Flair has even said, if we were in the WWF, the fact that the Four Horsemen are a cultural landmark Despite not being in Titan, you know, that's yeah, to tell you something about their appeal. There's people, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day. We were like, isn't it odd that Flair is more of a cultural, um, flashpoint now than Hogan is? If you told me that when I was like a teenager that when you're an adult, you're a little bit older, you know, Ric Flair is going to be like more culturally revered than Hulk Hogan. I said, you're crazy. Right now, Flair is really, whether it's, you know, rappers or ESPN, or being, or appearing with Michigan, being an honorary captain, he's basically he, the Horseman gimmick has endured. That's that's the only difference in that era that's really kind of still around. People hold up four fingers, you know what you're talking about, and you you don't see that from other stuff. Maybe DX, but that's more recent. But the fact that something happened 35 years ago, people still talk about and go ape about. Yeah, really. I, you know, I never looked at it that way before, but that's correct. I mean, Flair and the Horsemen have really held up as cultural icons. There's one other thing I have to talk about about that tag team match, and that is when Tommy Young takes a bump, when he goes down, the crowd groaned. I thought that was when I heard that. And <laughs> I, I always say this, it, it, no matter how how bad a crowd reaction sounds on TV. It's always a hundred times worse when you're there. And if I'm Jim Crockett Jr., as soon as I see that, I'm like, okay, Dusty, no more, A, no more ref bumps for at least a year. Like, no ref bumps. And number two, the Dusty finish goes into permanent retirement after that because it was almost like the people knew it was going to happen, and it happened. And you, you have right. to bench that. I'm sorry. That was my point about you can't book. You are you have to know you cannot book the Road Warriors with that finish. You can't. There will be a flat-out yeah. revolt. They expect, they, they expect we're winning in our hometown. We're doing it for our people, for our brothers in Chicago. What the hell, man? Either give them the belts. I would have accepted a loss, you know, a flat-out, you know, loss. Hawk gets hit with a chair or a pipe, something. I would have accepted that over, you know, just what they did. It made no Christian, sense to me. I wonder, and, and, I wonder what the Road Warriors would have said if Dusty said, look, I'm going to have you guys go over and win the titles at Starcade. Then about six weeks later, you guys are going to lose the titles on a house show, and we won't even show the pinfall on TV. Can we do that, please? I wonder if they would have agreed to that. If Dusty told him, probably because again they were very, they were very good with Dusty. They 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 they've never been someone who's been unagreeable. It just has to make sense. I mean, what they could have done was had them. I said, do them do, win the titles, then have that powers of pain thing with the uh, the with the bench press situation, right? Have Hawk get, have Animal get hurt. They can't defend the titles, and so have a tournament for him then. You know, have a one night tournament. You know, I do that way. It would have made sense. Road Warriors still look strong. You know, they're avenging their, their defeat to the powers of pain or the, or the 
or the or whatever happened to them, and the belts go back to Tully and Arn. But the, I think the issue was this was you can't have the the I think the whole thing was the horsemen at that point were so strong in terms of the heels aspect of it. You can't have because think about this. Luga turns, we're obviously doing, we're, we're fast forwarding, but they do the Luga turn later in the show. You've only got one champion and that's Rick. You can't have Tully, you know what I'm saying, with their thumbs in the, in the air, you know, doing whatever. And next thing you know, what do we have here? We have three, we have three active wrestlers, the world champion, the manager, and, you know, we're, we're trying to show them they're the baddest dudes on the planet, but they're not. Titles, you know, titles kind of speak to that, but they, they could have done something different. I'd rather them do something where the road would just do a job that night than just do, what they did because it made no sense. Again, it Man. just didn't. And ultimately, it was it was an unsatisfactory finish for all parties. Well involved. put. That was unsatisfactory, and it really it just pissed the fans off. I think you know in Chicago, and and really, it felt like the fans kind of didn't come back after that. It was like you know the cl- crowd was deflated for the last two matches. I want to talk about this really quick. They have an intermission, right? I, I feel almost so old using that word because wrestling doesn't have those anymore. Yet wrestling always had them in the you know seventies and eighties. So now we're having it just because it's what we're accustomed to do. Plus, they're putting up the cage, right? So now we have two cage matches to finish this up. First one: Dusty Rhodes challenging United States Champion Lex Luger uh, in the cage. Should Dusty lose this match? He has to not wrestle anywhere for the next 90 days. And I really, Christian, I really believe that there was a last-minute audible called on this because my, uh, what's what I'm looking for, my understanding was that Dusty was going to lose on a screw job and come back as the Midnight Rider after this. The Midnight Rider. <laughs> I, heard, I heard that because I remember thinking, I remember joking with a friend of mine. We talked about this about two or three years ago. I said, Dusty, it appeared to be in 87 and 88, was determined to do everything in Florida that he had done and do it again. You know, bring back the Midnight Rider, bring back Kevin Sullivan, you know, all this other garbage. And it was like, the the point is this, this match, I don't know what they were going to do. The finish actually works for me and that the match is fine. But the problem was this, it's about 16, match is about 16, 17 minutes. Luger at that point is still kind of, I'm trying to be very generous here. Not good in the ring. Yeah. <laughs> Despite having worked with, you know, Tully, Arn, Rick, the Road Warriors, Rock and Roll for most of this year, working with Wyndham. You know, you, the funny part is he became better when he turned heel again. He was much better. So he kind of learned. But at this point, asking um, Lex to carry a match of this magnitude and an event of this magnitude, like this looked to me like a Tully Blanchard, Dusty Rhodes match. Because, you know, work on the arm, this, that, and the other. Whereas Tully can do that because he's smaller and can, like, you know, annoy Dusty. You know, in, in the reality of his Lex should have been, like, been picking up Dusty, throwing him around, slapping the hell out of him, throwing him against the cage, beating him, like, you know, this, that, and the other. I mean, the finish to me is fine. You know, the DDT on the chair because it kind of set up Lex turning um, face. But, again, I don't know what Dusty was planning with the Midnight Rider because you can't, that's, that has a shelf life. And it, and it gets to the point right now where fans have become too smart for that. Some, I guess they're too smart for their own good. You, know, you couldn't you couldn't fool them with, you know, the Midnight Rider. Other than that cute Dusty's putting on the mask, no one wants to see that garbage. They don't want to see that. You know, it's not Florida 1982 anymore, Dust. You know, we were entering an age where, you know, heels had strong fan bases. And, you know, the lines kind of became very blurred. And it was like, I'm no longer just going to root for this guy because you tell me to. I'm rooting for someone that appeals to me. And it goes back to the point about flair. And we'll talk about it during the main event because that's something that really needs to be emphasized, how the, how the mindset and psyche of fans have changed really, from, not just from from one year to the next. Dusty, Dusty could have raised his hand. People would have cheered. But but it was getting to the point where people were like, you know, I'm sick of this old guy chewing fake gum. And he needs to go on and, and, and maybe go on. So. That's kind of the I, I remember at. right around this time thinking, you know, coming into the match, I was thinking, you know, this this should Midnight Rider thing coming up, which I thought it well, it, it showed up eventually, but I was like, that should really be the finale for Dusty. He looks old, he looks tired. Um, 
you know, and, and in this match, it was funny. Dusty, I mean, he's just way too heavy at this point. I'm not trying to be mean. He's just, but he's way too heavy. And guess who's the one who's actually blowing up? Guess who's the one who's gasping for air at some points? Lex Luger. And that just tells me, you know, they were they were ready to make Lex Luger their own Hulk Hogan. And when I first watched this match, and I, I said it, I said the same thing when I when I rewatched this event. This guy's not ready. Which is why you think I said, I know, Chris, I'm not calling you out, bro. When you people say it should have been Luger, I'm like, I don't know what makes people think they should have chosen Lex Luger over Sting. The minute you saw that, this match and how he looked, because at this point, people forgot. When he first got to Crockett, his first program was with Baron Von Raschke. Then they hit him in tag matches for a dang on near three months. He was teaming with Tully at the Crockett Cup. He was teaming with Flair. He was teaming with Arn Anderson. He didn't have a single program until when? He went up against Nikita, right? And and again, the fact that Nikita was leading a lot of those matches to tell you how bad Lex was in the ring, that, that's pretty much tell you where he was at that point. The fact that Nikita was kind of calling stuff. Because if you watch the cage match when he, uh, when they, um, do the, do the title switch, Nikita's calling the match. Basically, I called that match the chin lock match. Cause it was Lex and, and Nikita in the chin lock for, for 20 minutes. You know, I, Luger was not ready for that, for that match. If you, and, and when I said for this type of match, this event to ask him to carry a match, a main event match like this for dang on near 20 minutes in, in a cage was absurd. He wasn't ready for that responsibility. And it's not that he couldn't grow into it, you know, it, like someone like Magnum grew into that responsibility, gave him this, gave him that, spoon fed him. He was ready for it. Lex, I never got the sense that he was this, this, I hate to use this term. I never got the sense that it mattered to him to be the U.S. champion or the world champion or anything else like that. So that, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I know, I know Lex is a different person now, but back then to me, he just seemed like someone that wasn't ready for the responsibility of, we're putting this belt on you because we expect you to draw money and do good things. And ultimately, you know, he, he grew into a better person and a better wrestler. But at that point in time, he wasn't ready to do it. That is an excellent segue to something that I wanted to mention. I heard at the time, back in 1987, right, be, right before Starcade, that Dusty had a confrontation with Lex Luger, Dusty being the, the booker and kind of the boss, where he told Lex Luger, you know, we're, we're done babying you. We've been babying you since you got here, and we're done babying you. You are going to blade. You are going to do jobs. You're going to do what you're told. And Lex is like, dude, I've got a contract and I'm not, you know, I've got my money. I don't care. I don't care what you do with me. And it, it just go, leads into what you said, Christian. You know, it's like Luger would often talk about, and, you know, wrestlers resented this, but I get it. Well, what would Lex Luger's character do if, like, Flair hated when he when he did that? Because it's like, you know, you're not a character, you're you. But I understood where Luger was coming from. But again, he's someone... He's not like Ric Flair who grew up wanting to be a wrestler and every night got to live his dream. Like this was to him, it was a paycheck. And that's why I said you give it. What do I always say about Flair when he gets a new toy? When Flair got a new toy, he was excited. When he got, and I, we're, we're kind of regurgitating a point. When Flair got Sting, what did you see? Enthusiasm. Like this dude can go 40 minutes. Ah, oh, yes. This guy can do this. Ah, oh, yes. I, I never saw a good match between Flair. I just said they didn't have a good match, but with Flair, it was oftentimes he was trying to drag something out of Luger. With Stain, was more natural. And, you know, I know Arn Anderson confronted Luger on the plane more than one. I had heard that from, for more than one person. The double A kind of got in space, like, look, you know, don't disrespect vets. Don't disrespect people. You know, it was, it, he also, and he also did things to Nikita. Arn didn't get the nickname the enforcer by accident. It was it was a real moniker because he was kind of the policeman of the locker room saying you better uh you know you better figure out what's going on or I'll figure it out <laughs> for you and I and everyone was everyone respected Arn Anderson enough to say you know what yeah we need to listen to Double A because we we ain't gonna, we ain't gonna, we ain't gonna sit there and and do the the stupidity that we're not we're not going to disrespect this business and more to the point you're not going to disrespect Arn Anderson. And live to tell about it. That, that's one man I would not. No, Arn Anderson is a lot bigger than he looks on TV, and Arn was someone not to be yes, toyed with. I've seen, oh, I've, I've seen him. I've seen him in person. I've, I've heard people like they said they loved Arn for a sense of humor, but they basically said that if Arn spoke, it was it's kind of like him and Bobby Eaton speaking. Like if they spoke, you listened, 
And if Arn sat you down and said, "Hey, you know, show some respect and do what do what I tell you to do," you know, they, 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 that's how it works. But you know, the, the the switch happened. I mean, I liked the finish. I mean, I liked how it led into the turn of him becoming a babyface. When JJ Dillon, about two weeks later, when he turns babyface, gives one of the all time great promos about the game plan that night. I would advise people to find it. And if I can find it, I'll post it because it's truly, it, it shows JJ's a master of his craft and being able to say things. And we forgot to mention Johnny Weaver being in the corner getting knocked out by JJ, but you know, we, we forgot the about Weaver from the Weaver lock, which, uh, <laughs> which I was like, um, last time I checked, you didn't really have a special name for a sleeper, but you know, I'm glad, you know, there were so many angles that led to this thing that were so corny, like Hiro Matsuda putting Tommy Young to sleep. You know, and Tommy bleeding out of the mouth. You know, it was just, yeah, I know that, that, but that was funny when (laughs) he did that. But it was, I, 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 I thought, I thought, like I said, I liked the finish. And, you know, but like you said, Dusty at this point, I'm glad you said that. I thought he looked awful at this point. I thought, my God, he just looked bad. I I didn't want, and I don't want to, listen, we, all those, none of us bashed Dusty because we like bashing him. Dusty did a lot of great things, but at that point, Jim Cornette said he needed to take himself off the top. Especially the following year when you had Sting and Luger being your lead faces, you know, received to the background. It almost makes me think if Magnum, you know, if the accident, would, what makes me think about Magnum's accident even more? Would he, would have Dusty would he have ceded the spotlight to Magnum? Because, and truthfully, he needed to at that point in time. No, I remember right around this time, like early '88, being like, yeah, wow, the 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 NWA they've got some good young guys as baby faces, and and Dusty kind of is letting them pass him you know luger sting and barry windham and dusty is fine as a number four but you know that was before dusty unleashed the midnight rider on us in in spring of 88 but we'll get to that when the time comes christian remind me after we're done recording i've got an arn anderson story for you that i cannot share on this podcast but anyway It's good to know. It makes it kind of scares me. I'm like, wait, I don't want double incoming look. I don't want double incoming look. No, no, no. <laughs> Nothing like that. Finally, we have the main event, right. the often discussed uh, Ron Garvin, NWA champion, defending the title against Ric Flair. I remember coming in thinking, okay, Ric Flair, greatest wrestler of all time. Can this show be salvaged by a great Ric Flair match? And it was a good match, Christian. I didn't think it was a great match. I think this match needed, this show needed a great match, and it got a very good match. And it was all kind of overshadowed by the whole controversy of Ron Garvin winning the NWA championship. And just, you know, anyone, the, the densest work in the world could see that this whole show was just about Ric Flair regaining the title. <laughs> The funny part about it was, and I go, it goes back to the point when he goes to, if I, if I said someone had to watch an NWA show and say, why am I watching this or what's better? The fact that the van, there's a lot, very loud and audible Garvin sucks chance. Two of them. Match. <laughs> and, and it made me think, my God, this is terrible. I felt part of me felt bad, but the other part of me, it made me feel good that people get flair. He, they like him. They want to cheer for him. It's sort of what I call the beginning of what I call the the anti-hero portion of wrestling. When I said heels rarely had large pockets of fans. Yeah, you had people with hot rod shirts. Yeah, you had people with macho man shirts. But the fours were the first ones that came along that really had a devoted vocal portion of people that cheered for them. And it's it's ironic that Flair became was kind of like the the patron saint of this because a few weeks after this show, what movie came out that pretty much set the tone for? You know, the anti-hero or the amoral person telling you, I don't care what you think of me. I'm doing what I'm doing. The, what was the movie? It was the end of the year. Uh, think about it. I'll give you a hint. Start Michael Douglas. Oh, I'm sorry. Wall Street. John? Yeah. And I, and what did Wall... I mean, I know people right now that can quote that movie, film, the speech about the, the greed is good part. That's what Flair was. It was like, I don't care what he's doing. I like him. You know, yeah. Oh, you want me to cheer for Ronnie Garvin? Not happening. You know, and in this case, it was Flair giving you a great performance. You know, or or a somewhat good performance. And you know, the bad part about it is Flair wins the title. He, you hear him yell "woo," and you just see Garvin slink out of the ring. And it's like, it was just to me, it was like this. This show it kind of culminated that you guys really, yeah, you people got what they wanted with Flair winning, but 
this could have been so much more. And it should have been so much more, but it wasn't. So it's just, to me, it was a situation where you, you, the anti-hero wins and everyone is, is somewhat happy, but it, this could have been, I don't know who you could have booked in the main event or done, but it's just, it's, it's, to me, it was, it was, it was just a show that didn't really stand out as compared to previous year's events and particularly on Thanksgiving that a night that had given so many memories in this, in the, in this business. Yeah. I mean, this was the NWA Super Bowl, and it, it, it fell flat in my opinion, in a lot of people's opinion. And it's not even about like, you know, Ron Garvin, should he have been NWA champion? It's more like, okay, Dusty, there were Starcades in 83, 84, 85, 86, and there's going to be one in 87. So you've got an entire year to figure out, and configure a main event for this show. And in that regard, I think he failed miserably, to be honest with you. And he, at this point, he's really starting to show that maybe Jim Crockett needs a new booker, or maybe he needs to do what Memphis does, which is, you know, one guy on six months, then another guy on six months. But I, I'm, I've, I heard after the fact that um, Jim Crockett had a sit down with Dusty Rhodes and Crockett decided that Dusty had enough ideas going into 88 to salvage things. And plus, Kevin Sullivan and Jim Cornette got to at least partially book their own programs. But at this point, you, you got to say to yourself, OK, Dusty, he had a great 84, great 85 a great 86, but he had not a great 87 and not, you know, every booker has a shelf life. And I believe at this point I had reached the conclusion that Dusty's better, better days were at best behind him. And maybe someone else needed to be the booker. It's like, it's like a coach. It's like, like Bill Parcells once said, there's comes a point where they stop listening. So, you know, you, you kind of have to, that's kind of the way it is. I think the problem was, I mean, 86, they were so hot. Dusty, everything Dusty touched turned to gold. Um, I don't know what you could, again, I'm not going to belabor the point about the merger again, but I'm going to belabor the point about the fact that what you have a year to think about things. And basically they kind of ran through. I mean, Dusty had a pretty good 87. I mean, the war games was great. I mean, but after that, it was like downhill. They had nothing, they had no place to go or nothing to really offer that could have done anything even greater. I want to also mention the point. When you were talking about the um, during the WrestleMania three podcast, I don't remember who you did it with, but you brought up a good point. It's, it's kind of this thing I want to make, kind of re- revisit. Eighty seven wasn't really a great year for both the big two promotions. It, they had good moments, obviously WrestleMania three, and so on and so forth, but not enough throughout the course of the year that made you go, "That was a spectacular year all the way around." Hogan wasn't used properly. Flair wasn't used properly this year, or, or showcased that he he started out hot with Barry Windham and Nikita, but after that, what else did he have? He didn't really have anything. And it was kind of a situation where they, they had a chance to put some new blood in and they didn't do it. And, you know, maybe it was too soon for Sting at that point. Obviously it was. We found out when he went into the following year what he was going to become. But, you know, I, that, that goes back to the point about them not having someone like a DiBiase or someone there that can kind of, or maybe even Terry Gordy that can possibly, you know, come in and, and, and fill, and fill those shoes. But it's, this is really where we talk about the beginning of the end for Jim Crockett promotions because they just didn't, they couldn't sustain what they were doing because again, they, they, they ran through talent. And, you know, when you have egos like Dusty and them saying, I can still book this, I can still do this, you're going to run into a, run into problems. And ultimately we saw what the problems were. Then 88 was led to the, dis, the, the dissolving of the company and they're taking over by Ted, by Ted Turner. So that it's unfortunate, but it's, it's business. And that's unfortunately what, what, uh, Whatever. You know, Christian, I was I watched this show on the Saturday after Thanksgiving with the same group of friends that I watched Star, uh, Survivor Series with, and we were at the end of the show, right right before Saturday night's main event. We're kind of looking at each other, going, "I can't believe the WWF had a better show than the NWA had with Starcade." That's that was true. That was the that was the weird thing about it because. It's like if you go back and look at '85, what was better, WrestleMania or Starcade '85? Starcade '85. What was better, WrestleMania two or Starcade '86? What? Right. You go back to '87. Vince kicked their rear end twice. WrestleMania three, Survivor Series versus their big show. Again, I never thought I'd say this, but if you put, like I said, if you put it up on the screen and said, "What's the better product?" I put them next to each other for that year for those two events. Vince wins. 
sadly enough. Now, the funny part is, a year later, Crockett reverses it. If you put WrestleMania four and Clash of the Champions on these against each other, what wins? Not even close. You know, not putting the even the bat. As I said, by the time they got to the bash in Baltimore, the pay per view had cleaned itself up. They looked professional. The graphics looked better. The camera work looked better. The presentation was cleaner and better. So they, to their credit, they learned from their mistakes. Whereas the following year in '89, they had some of the best stuff you'll ever see. I mean, they really, I think, kind of cleaned Vince's clock in terms of just quality content and just how it looked. But for that, but Vince won in '87, which enabled him to out, which which in, in, enabled them him to inevitably outlast them because he had too much of a foothold at that point to uh to be caught. And that and that's the part that's unfortunate. That could have been prevented. Yeah, I, I think Vince was going to win this thing anyway. But I mean, he definitely kind of you know, I mean, closed the coffin, nailed it shut by keeping Starcade 87 off of pay-per-view, except for four small cable companies throughout the country. Christian, this has been a great review. Thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Again, I want to say happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, to the Brotherhood. All y'all take care of yourselves. Be well. Also, when, whenever this airs, make sure you go out and vote. Take care of each other because we're all we got. On this there planet. you go. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit there and get ready to watch a whole bunch of Christmas commercials <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and be annoyed by the Christmas starting on November fourth. But you know how this. We'll talk before the end of the year, John, and all we'll right. talk sooner or later. Okay. As we're thank doing you, thank you again, Christian. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Brian Last and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for giving me this platform. It is greatly appreciated. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. Believe me, he does a lot of great work. And I want I, once again thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking with you next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.